Well, I got a call from the hospital one day and they said, can you bring Bear over? I have a child who is unconscious, who has been in an accident and he has head injuries and he's in a coma. And it was a, an induced coma. We tried to bring him out of the coma and we cannot wake him up. Welcome to another edition of This Alabama Life. My name is Don Keith. I'm your host. Andrea Tice is here. Good to see you, Andrea. Good to be here. I'm excited about today. Oh, I bet you are. We've got a great one for you today. This Alabama Life is a podcast for those of you who are tired of politics and pandemic, and maybe you're tired of mandates and data that doesn't tell us anything. If you're stressed, that sort of thing, this this podcast is designed to tell stories of, of Alabamians or people who have an association with Alabama who are doing positive things, uplifting things, people who are changed through the things that they do that are so positive and uplifting. And I'm thrilled to have a chance to, to be able to tell these particular stories. And today, as Andrea says, and she kind of gave away our excitement about telling this particular story, it uh, starts with a, a seriously injured boy a dog named Bear, and a brilliant breakthrough. Service Dogs of Alabama has been actively helping people, uh, people who have disabilities or illnesses or various other issues for more than a decade now, and I admit I was not aware of them. Uh, The work of this uh, particular nonprofit organization has forged some new pathways for service dogs, how they're used, how they're trained, the specific goals that they go out and do, and the purpose of service dogs. And uh, you'll see what we mean about this being sort of unique. The, uh, the end result has literally changed lives for a lot of people. From the moments the pups show up, little doggies, uh, until they begin training for their big uh, minute in the sun, their big job, They're handed off to the person in need. It's an absolutely amazing and uplifting story. Andrea, uh, you spent some time at a very unique facility down south of Montgomery. Yes, yes. I headed down to Service Dogs of Alabama a couple of months ago, um, and that's why we're bringing it into studio here, the interview that I obtained down there. The facility is just about a mile uh, off of I-65, so it's real easy to get to. It's the Hope Hall exit yes. uh, before you get to the turkey place. That's right. Everybody goes to the beach knows where the turkey place is. Yes, and and uh, so yeah, I went down there and uh, was able to find the place pretty easily. It's set back in off of the road. There's a nice gated area. The, it's a very unassuming house and a facility built back in there surrounded by a whole lot of fields and a stocked pond. I would say if you're going to have dogs, that's the perfect location, right? Yes, you're definitely, especially in light of the fact that that facility has at least 30 dogs in various forms of training uh, at SDA. And the whole goal of that training is to basically create a furry first responder for both adults and children who have special needs or special disabilities. It could be an invisible disability that is not real obvious to the eye, or it could be. But that's the whole goal behind this. And um, so that's what I that's what I found when I went down there to interview Francis McGowan and Ashley Taylor, who are the, the two founders of this whole thing. And it started in 2015, right? It did. 
It did. And it, it didn't just come out of the blue. When I talked to Frances in, in particular, because she's the director of SDA, it, it was something that came, didn't just come out of the blue for them. They had been working together, Ashley and Frances, for seven years prior to 2015. And what they were doing was taking their therapy dogs into hospitals and deal, uh, using their therapy dogs with patients there. And then from there, a special thing happened that uh, launched Francis into SDA. And we'll, we'll find out more about that later. But uh, Francis starts off with the interview telling us about what it looks like to take a dog into a hospital as a therapy dog. And we did rounds normally in the cancer ward, but also in the children's pediatrics. And I would take Bear and he would interact and we would go see people. And sometimes Bear would get in the bed with him. Sometimes he wouldn't. It depends on what the person wants. That's Francis. She's the director of SDA, while Ashley serves as chief dog trainer. It was because of a requested visit to a hospital that the course of these two ladies' lives were changed. Frances is going to share that story further on into this podcast, and you won't want to miss it. She made it clear when I sat down to talk with her that this was a canine catalyst, an event that would open up new realms of exploration and development when it comes to human psychology and animal behavior working together. And then watching them work is just a phenomena. By the end of three years of training, a service dog coming out of SDA is able to provide 24-7 attention to a specific area of need for a person with a disability. This type of expertise is invaluable to that person who's trying to live a more functional life. It's somebody that is, uh, has seizures, um, a seizure alert and assistance dog, for instance, will alert to the seizure coming on. Uh, first by nudging, and then it will escalate to barking if the person doesn't pay attention to them. And then once the person is seizing, the dog will bark. And if the person is in its environment, its home environment, it will um, go and get, it can be taught to go and get a parent to come and see about the child. Or if he is in a place where there is no one that he recognizes around, he will stay with that person, sometimes nudging their head, up under the, a person's head so that they won't hurt themselves, you know, but they will allow other people to be of assistance to that person. They're not aggressive. They're not protective. So there are a number of things that we can train the a seizure dog to do depending on the kinds of seizures that that particular person has. But diabetes, the same thing. They alert, we train them to alert and assist, but alert to a diabetic low. So when he smells the a certain number the, uh, dropping or going up then the dog will nudge again and then escalate to a bark until that person treats themselves and the smell of that sugar goes back to normal it's the same thing with anxiety they can alert but if that person doesn't understand that they have to calm themselves down or utilize the dog to calm themselves down so that their uh, levels of anxiety are back to normal, then the dog will continuously alert. So you can't fool the dog. Francis has also been able to witness families get the much-needed relief and reassurance that comes with their child having a four-legged alert system. She says despite the seemingly hefty price tag of training the dog in three years, there really is no other affordable alternative to such a companion whose senses are far superior than any medical device or human eye or ear. I mean, how do you value a dog that saves a child's life when they alert for a low blood sugar in the middle of the night to the parent who would have lost the child if they had not? Our kids that get these dogs, 
don't end up in the hospital emergency rooms anymore. I mean, and they used to go every three months. Think of all of the things that are taxed by the issues that occur without somebody being able to watch over that child or intervene with that child at school or you're not going to find anything for $40,000 that's a 24-7 that's going to give you that many hours of service. So Dawn, after you've listened to this so far, I don't know about you, but um, I'm again impressed uh, about how much a service dog can change an individual's life and really uh, help them overcome a disability and return to a more functioning daily routine. And that's the beauty of what they do. But it's not just, it it is specific to an individual, but they've expanded even beyond that. And Francis talks about how they they are also able to train a facility dog. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. I've heard the term, but I have absolutely no idea what that means. And I I think everybody's heard service dog, but a facility dog. Did uh, Francis... Give you any insight as to oh, what yeah. that was? Oh yeah, and she had, Francis was uh, had a plethora of stories to to back up uh, what all these dogs are doing to change people's lives. But in the case of a facility dog, they are trained to not just uh, interact with one individual specifically with a specific need, but they're trained to interact with multiple people. In this case, in a lot of cases, it's kids, and they can then put those facility dogs in a classroom at a specific school or in a courthouse where there's a lot of uh, cases and trials that might involve children that need some support from a facility dog. It's just amazing what that does to, to help people, especially children that are having emotional needs. And Francis was talking about a specific story just to illustrate what these dogs are able to do. And it involves a dog with the best name ever, Popcorn. So get your butter and salt ready and listen to this. Yes. And one of those dogs, Popcorn, left the classroom and the teacher didn't even recognize it because the teachers kind of let the dogs do what they're supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. and they teach the class. The dog is not a disruptive factor in the class whatsoever. Mm. The dog had left the classroom. She looked around and couldn't find the dog. So she walks out in the hall and she's kind of walking up and down the hall looking in the classrooms because the doors are open and there's popcorn. And he is sitting there with his head in the lap of a a little boy. I think the little boy was in the first grade, second grade. And uh, popcorn is just laying there and doesn't even look up at his handler when she comes in. And so she goes up, she knows the dog, they've been doing it long enough that they recognize when popcorn is doing something like that, it's important. Went and talked to the teacher and the teacher said, the father left the child yesterday and said he would never see him again if the child chose to stay with the mother. So um, the, the child obviously was extremely upset that day. Well, for that entire week, that dog left her classroom and stayed with that child for that week. There's a complicated process of using human psychology and animal behavior sciences in training an SDA canine. Francis tried to simplify it down for me. I'm the fresh pup trying to understand this big world of training service dogs. We, we've got to have a dog that's going to sense that anxiety and do the opposite, break that pattern to make that person feel a different way, raise that energy level. 
keep them from staying in depression to long periods of time. Because again, the way neuroplasticity works is that we, the neural pathways are strengthened by continuing to stay there and they shrivel up and can die or become much lesser dominant if we continue to break that cycle. So that that's not our default, that's not our normal, that's our abnormal. So get this, the service dogs are just basically able to sense the unseen in a human mind and body and then are trained to insert themselves and create a tangible physical alternative. It's really amazing how these dogs are used to help a person navigate out of a mental block that's been created by a trauma or a physical deficiency. I guess, I guess it was an evolution of understanding the, um, the power that the dog has initially. And us as pet owners and therapy dog owners realize that they have this power but our dogs are not so trained in behaviors and lifestyle as a service dog or a facility dog is to recognize when he feels that anxiety or smells it or senses it, that he goes into work mode rather than he feels sorry for the person or he just wants to curl up or he takes on the anxiety himself which looks cute and the person thinks it's nice because they're kind of hiding behind them and cuddling up with them so they're like they feel what i feel well they do but when you're trying to break a cycle you're not trying to reinforce a cycle sda has been honing and enhancing their strategies and programs at the training facility and they now have a decade's worth of knowledge under their belt I don't know, maybe I should say collar. While their training methods may be customized or adjusted to the personality of the dog or its recipient, the primary goal remains the same. The dogs are trained to use their brains to do what they know how to do, and we train them how to do it in a way that will be helpful to humans. You know, it's amazing. So, Andrea, it appears to me that this uh, SDA is really homing zeroing right in on using animal behavior, which is natural, with human psychology. And that, uh, that that's sort of an odd juxtaposition, but it certainly works. Uh, what is so impressive to me is it's happening right here in Alabama. And, uh, you know, everybody in Alabama has a dog. I grew up with, we always had at least one and often more dogs. The only funny thing is they were all named Pudgy. <laughs> they were all named, every one of them was we weren't very creative folk out there in St. Clair. Pudgy 2.0, yeah, Pudgy 3.0. Pudgy 2.1 or whatever. And, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we're the only state that I know of that has an official coon dog cemetery because those coon hunters love their dogs so much they want to make sure that they uh, have a, a great afterlife too, I guess. I know, I know. It, it is amazing. Actually, what's, a, what's also interesting is before I even did this interview with Francis, my husband and I went to Muscle Shoals for the weekend and we specifically went out oh, of our way right. and went to the Coon Dog Cemetery. And it was, it was fantastic. I mean, we're talking about, I think it was in the 1930s when it was started up. So we're almost 90 plus years um, of, of people paying tribute to, you know, to their dogs, to their hunting dogs, to their working dogs, and just showing their uh, their appreciation for the dedication of these dogs and what they provided. It really is amazing. There's probably over 50 headstones in, in various sizes, and some of them are pretty doggone elaborate. 
with what they detail about their dogs and all of that. Pretty doggone elaborate. Did you see what she did uh, there? Yeah. Okay. I didn't even realize I did that. <laughs> I mean, some of the, some of those headstones were better than the ones my grandmother got. And I, I'm amazed. So, yes, there is definitely a, a strong bond between Alabamians and their dogs. Alabamians do love their dogs, for sure. And, you know, it, it appears to me it's very obvious from what we're hearing that SDA not only loves dogs, but they love the potential they have for making life better for people. Yes. And so this is the perfect time for us to get back to the uh, story that was alluded to, the dog named Bear, the injured boy, and the brilliant breakthrough. Well, I got a call from the hospital one day and they said, can you bring Bear over? I have a child who is unconscious, who has been in an accident and he has head injuries and he's in a coma. And it was a, an induced coma. We tried to bring him out of the coma and we cannot wake him up. And his family is here. We've moved him to a regular suite in the hospital. We don't know what's going to happen. The family is extremely distraught. Okay. Can you bring Bear to comfort the family? Because he is unconscious. Yes. And so his name was Connor. Okay. Um, and so I did. I took Bear and I got in the room and I said, please let me put Bear in the bed with Connor. I said, I just feel like there's something that needs to happen here. And I totally believed in this miraculous conduits of healing grace, you know, with, with animals because they have no barriers. And so I put Bear in the bed with Connor, who was hooked up to wires and had braces on and everything else. And I took his hand and I petted Bear on the head and he woke up immediately. It wasn't even five minutes later. It was immediate. And so I, as soon as that happened, obviously he doesn't know where he is. Yeah. And, um, of course, all the nurses and the doctors are being called in, and I have to get Bear out of the bed, my 80-pound lab, and leave. So I get Bear out of the bed, and we leave. But it was a very powerful moment for me even though I really believed it going in it was an extremely powerful moment Ashley who is our training director who was with one of the founders of this yes. program with me um, she was actually with me going on other rounds with her dog at the same time and I came out crying and she said I don't know what you're crying about you knew that was gonna happen <laughs> anyway so I'll go home that night and I just can't stop thinking about it and yeah. The next morning, about seven in the morning, I get a phone call from the grandmother who was in the room when that happened. And she said, after you left, he stayed awake for about 10 minutes and then he went, slipped back into the coma. Mm. And I just, you know, she said, can you bring Bear back tomorrow? That's not pressure, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I bathed Bear. You have to bathe him right before you go to the hospital. I took Bear back to the hospital and I went through the same thing. But when I walked in the room this time, there were nurses, family members, friends, a minister lining the walls because of what happened the day before. But I had to maintain my focus, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I was going to disrupt Bear's ability to do anything, to, yes. to stay clear. Because if I have anxiety, he's going to pick up on my anxiety. He's not going to be a clear conduit for anything. And I'm just using that phrasing. It doesn't really mean that's exactly what it is. And so I put Bear back in the bed with Connor and 
take his hand, he's completely unconscious. And again, touch, start just stroking Bear on the head and he woke right back up. And that time when he woke up, he sat up in the bed and he was clear-minded and his mother, of course, everybody's crying. Yeah. And his mother is saying to him, uh, Connor, this is Bear. Can you say Bear? And he kind of whispered Bear. And he said, can you tell me what color Bear is? And he said, black. And, you know, and so they knew his brain was now going to yes, find. Yes. So it was like a miraculous moment. And at that time, they didn't let me leave. You know, I stayed and I came back every day until he went to Atlanta for rehab because he could not walk or talk or use his arms or anything after the accident. But he relearned how to do everything. He was very successful in it at Shepherd's Spinal Clinic in Atlanta. Came back, finished high school, because he was only 14. He finished high school, joined the Navy, and came to see me in his uniform when he had finished, you know, with, when he had graduated. When Francis told me this story, first of all, I was just in utter amazement. I got chills. Yes. Literally. Yes, and that she was very clear that this was her personal trigger story. This is what launched her into SDA, slowly but surely, is, you know, what she experienced at that hospital. And it's kind of like Francis knew that there was a potential here that had to be explored and um, very much like a hound on the trail of a big fat coon. And, and she, that's what she went after, and she stuck with it. And that's why we have SDA today. And uh, it, it just continues to affect people's lives for the better. Well, you and your interview and Francis in telling the story is that this would be the perfect place to end the whole thing. But that's not all the story. No. Oh, man, is there more to the story? No, but wait, there's more. There is so much more because I don't know if, if I told you this, but Francis has a master's degree in counseling. Okay. And b long before she even started using dogs in hospitals as therapy dogs or even starting SDA, she was using her counseling degree in prisons. Wait, you said prisons? Yes. And we're talking about dogs now, right? Well, dogs come into the picture, but it first starts with Francis working in prison with inmates. And um, this interview, this next interview with her picks up on that where she just describes what she as a counselor experienced and what got her hooked into working with prison inmates. And then it goes from there. So buckle up. My background is working with inmates in Tutwiler Prison, Kilby Prison, Mount Meg's with the boys for five years, boot camps with boys that are incarcerated. Um, I was writing the same programs that we're utilizing today 15 years ago or 20 years ago. So. I've been doing this for a very long time in different arenas. I really enjoyed working with inside the prison systems. I felt like everybody there was so appreciative. They were kind of out of their mind into a different normal than had been their life before and hungry to learn new ways of thinking and um, ways to be happy. So as they started this program, Francis and Ashley determined not to settle for anything less than a multi-level impact for those involved with these dogs. SDA has partnered with prisons and inmates for the training of their dogs, and it's transforming the inmates' time in prison to a productive, life-altering experience. I was able to talk with a former inmate while on the grounds at Hope Hall. 
I had a three-year sentence, and I did uh, a little over two and a half years. That's Summer. She's now a full-time dog trainer with SDA after first being part of the training program while serving time. I was released from Florida State Prison July 29th, and then I came on a bus straight here. We walked and talked on a trail that was heading over to the housing area that SDA provides for veterans as they spend a week there to acclimate to their new dog. That's why you're going to hear the crunch of gravel and birds in the background. It was an absolutely gorgeous day as we walked around the stocked pond to tiny cabins. I would imagine even more so for Summer, who just a few months ago was still incarcerated and not sure about her future upon release. Because, you know, obviously being in prison, we, there's all kinds of, you know, how are you going to, I had limited contact with Ash, and then, of course, with COVID, nobody going in and going out. So it was very, um, it was kind of a, how is this all going to play out type of thing. But um, they were, they were able to come down in April. I was getting out in July, and I got to talk with them, and then I found a place here in Montgomery, and I got released straight onto a bus up here, and I got out on a Thursday, and I came to work on Sunday. Summer explained what compelled her to join the program, and the timing of it smells suspiciously like divine intervention. When I was waiting to go to prison, I kind of was feeling sorry for myself and wanted to blame everybody else, and when I got to prison, I just decided that, uh, you know, if I was going to do something, I, I needed to make productive use of my time. And, yeah and try and come out a different person because obviously what I was doing wasn't working. So uh, it, as fate would have it, as soon as uh, I got to the, my permanent facility, uh, which is uh, where the dog program was, they were having tryouts right then, which normally they only do them two times a year, um, sometimes only one time a year. So just the timing of it all worked out in my favor. So I hadn't even been on the compound two days when um, I put in my request to join the team, and then I tried out and made it. I don't know if you noticed, but Summer said she signed up and went to try out. So this wasn't just a case of first come, first serve. I wanted to know exactly what was SDA looking for in those tryouts. People think that it's it's easy and, it, and it's uh, not hard or whatever, but I can tell you I, I've handled dogs my whole life, and even for me, you know, I'm holding the leash up here, and it's it was very awkward, but they're really just wanting to see how you handle, if you stay calm, if you don't get frustrated, if, um, you know, if you keep your cool about it and if you're patient. Those are the things that they're looking at. Not necessarily if you can get the dog to do what you're asking them to do. And they'll generally just have you go over a couple commands with the dog, sit down, um, come here, wait. Pretty easy stuff. Um, and, you know, sometimes the dogs would do it and sometimes they wouldn't because like um, like Francis was explaining, dogs, they know. They know what's going on with you before you know what's going on with you a lot of times. Okay, so we've got Summer and her amazing story. Yes. In prison, as training, and I still got a question. Okay. How do puppies and prison come together? I know. That was the exact same question that came to my mind as she started in talking about the training. I'm like, no, wait a second. Help me out here. What does this look like? on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, where are the inmates? Where are the dogs? How do they interact? And all of that. And so she describes it and, it, and, and she gives a lot of details, you know, the daily routine. But, but overall, the, the, what I learned from this is that by having this very disciplined uh, regiment with the, with the dogs, you're creating a very calm, sensitive dog 
over time, just from the beginning, from the time that they're born as a puppy on up that, and that is what helps them become uh, highly sensitive to the needs of the special needs people. But anyways, here's Summer talking about what she does every day, what she did every day while in prison. We're in a, a dorm, an open dorm of 70 people. Okay. Our dog team down there is separated between two dorms. So you have 15 dogs in one dorm and 15 dogs in the other dorm, 30 dogs total. The dogs crates, as you've seen up there in the training center, we have metal crates like that. Okay. They're at the end of our bunks. So 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, or however long the dog is, is assigned to you, the dog is with you. At the end of your bed, um, we, you know, a normal day of training is uh, we have a morning count. It clears about 5.30 in the morning. Everybody wakes up and takes the dogs out on a dog run to use the restroom. Come back in, we feed them. Um, we're allowed to have the dogs in our little bunk area. Um, now with COVID, everything was kind of shut down a little bit, but normally there's a lot of um, programs on that compound. So, you know, if they have classes or education or extracurricular things, the dogs can pretty much, they go everywhere with us. Every time the dog comes out of the kennel, it's being trained. Yes. It's kind of like building a bond with the dog. The dog's getting to know you, you're getting to know the dog, and it's con structure and consistency. Gotcha. It's just, they're gonna know every day, we do it this way. We're gonna do it this way every day. So it's not, he doesn't even know any other way to do it. More importantly to the whole discussion, how does training a puppy affect a person so deeply that when I asked her to describe the effect, she responded this way. Yeah, I mean, I don't, what, what words can you try and, and come up with to, to describe just this, you know, it saved my life. Summer's not the only one to make such a serious claim. Francis also spoke about a veteran who was asked a similar question just a few days after Summer joined the SDA staff. Um, we had veterans here and we were trying to get some little film footage from each of the veterans. And I had a female um, veteran who was here with her dog that she's had. She was coming back for recertification. And she's had that dog for about three years now. And I said, you know, tell me what the dog has meant to you. And she, and immediately she just went silent. And I could see her whole demeanor change. And tears just started running down her face. I'm always afraid that I'm gonna say something that's gonna trigger some kind of episode. And I don't wanna do that. I'm trying to be sensitive. You know, I respect what they've been through. And, um, and I turned the camera off and I said, well, we'll, we'll do this later. And she said, no, it's just that I don't know what to say about a dog that saved my life. I mean, what can I say to make anybody to understand? Mm -hmm. So it's that powerful. It's that powerful. With this type of response, I, I felt the need to dig a little deeper into how a program is changing humans on both ends in the training and receiving of a dog. As Summer continued to tell me her story, she inadvertently revealed the core values that are brought out by the presence of a dog and the requirements of the mission to develop that dog, which ultimately changes the human as well. The first might seem obvious, and Summer readily agreed, its purpose. Structure, discipline, all of that. For me and for, I, I, I know for all the girls down at the prison that are part of the program, these dogs do just as much 
on that aspect. Yeah. It gives you something, it gives you something to put yourself into that's productive, that's healthy. Nice. Giving me this opportunity has changed my life. Along with that purpose and structure comes a high demand for patience with the dog and with yourself. It was more about learning about summer as it was about learning about the dogs. I mean, it all worked together because I, every, you know, I thought I was this patient person. I thought I was structured. I thought I was disciplined. I thought I was all of these things. And then you put a, a wild little puppy on a leash in your hand and you realize that maybe, maybe I'm not quite as, <laughs> but you learn it very quick because now here you are responsible for this living, breathing thing that solely depends on you for everything. There's also clearly some form of self-analysis or self-reflection that has to be employed that may not have ever been really done properly by the inmates before they landed in prison. You get so much about yourself and, and your own life. You know, there's many times when, you know, things happen, especially when I was, when I, you know, was in prison, it can be very frustrating and overwhelming. And at that point, that's when you gotta know yourself, yeah, I'm very, you know, this is, it's too much right now. And then that's when you put the dog up for 10 minutes, go take a breather, get your emotions in check. Cause I mean, it all runs down the leash. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be interacting with that dog when I'm angry or I'm frustrated or upset because why am I gonna do that to that dog? And of course, the necessary element to all healthy relationships, the bond of love and trust. And as you're building a bond with a dog, that dog is going to want to, it's, it's world, it's going to look up, you know, it's always going to be looking to you. Okay. You're their leader, you're their person, they, what do you want me to do? How do I make you happy? They just want to, as that bond grows, they're going to want to constantly make you happy, constantly look, at, look to you for direction, what do you want me to do? Okay. Um, they're going to read your body language too. That's a big thing. And your energy. It's interesting that you use the word energy. That's what pushes a person forward in life. And behind that energy, I would venture to say, is something else. And it's something that Summer referred to earlier during our conversation. You know, I mean, really, until somebody's ready to change their life, they're not going to change it, no matter how much people try and save them. Just almost in passing, she dropped this little nugget of truth where she talked about, you know, basically, it, uh, you can't change a person until they want to change. And I think that that is, she, she tapped onto something there that is what I think maybe the dogs are able to do. They're able to sense that someone has a desire and a need for change, and, and they go from there. Absolutely wonderful story. And, you know, I understand now how the dog and that unique animal behavior, uh, having someone that loves you unconditionally, mm -hmm. can play such a big part uh, in this whole operation that, that's going on here, how an inmate who may have given up on life in general suddenly mm -hmm. has something to look forward to, something new. Someone who needs them. Mm -hmm. Yes, and someone who, uh, in, in the process of being needed, it also helps them evaluate themselves and, and uh, you know, self-reflection and, and just seeing, maybe addressing some things that have never been addressed before in their life that uh, may be the reason why they even ended up where they are. Well, I know I'm impressed. I'm sure our listeners are, too, with uh, how the group is making this big step, uh, how they help others in need here in the state and beyond. Yes. Because I'm sure this knowledge is and, and the experience is going to other states. Yes.
and, and as Summer mentioned, they, she's, she was in a Florida prison and was able to do this. And uh, Francis is going out of the way to incorporate wherever she can the inmates that are willing to be part of this program. You know, it reminds me the patience that these dogs uh, bring to the table with an inmate who's in need and, and uh, is working through some things. It just reminds me of a big happy lab, you know, if you've ever owned one that just, uh, whether it's their 10th time or their 110th time bringing a ball to you while you sit in the chair, they do it with the same eagerness, right? And if you throw it, they, they act like it's the first time ever. It's, it, I think that's what it is these dogs bring that um, helps these inmates walk through whatever they need to do for their own character development is they bring a lot of patience and love to the table. Absolutely. I, I, I almost said an, an amazing story, but these are two amazing stories. I guess we should point out, by the way, for you cat lovers, we'll, we'll search high and low for a cat story or two for you. But <laughs> yeah. in, in this particular case, uh, dogs rule, cats drool, as they say. And the folks at SDA, they're doing fantastic work here in Alabama. This concludes our latest episode of This Alabama Life. I remind you that if you would like to hear other podcasts, if this is the first time you've stumbled upon the podcast, you can find them on iTunes, on Spotify, on YouTube. The, at least the video version is on YouTube. And you can always go to the 1819news.com website. Andrea, look forward to the next uh, This Alabama Life story. You bet. <laughs>